The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And it is great to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. Uh, before we jump into the passage this morning, I do just want to say a word of uh, thanks publicly to um, Amber Moore and Kim Burkett and their team of volunteers who helped us uh, do all the things that we had to do uh, yesterday and Friday night for Presbytery and the hours that they gave leading up to it. And, and thank you to Dale and to Rebecca for leading us in music this week, um, this weekend. It, if you've never been to a Presbytery meeting, um, well, you don't want to come to a president. Uh, that's not true. Um, but, but there's a lot that goes into them, and there's a lot that, that needs to be done in order for us to host the various churches. And, and these uh, volunteers within our midst uh, gave of themselves in a wonderful way, and, uh, and I'm just very thankful. So I want to, want to affirm them and, and thank them for using your gifts and your service to our church and to the churches in, in the Blue Ridge. Well, this morning, uh, we are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. We began this series last week, looking at the first few verses of Mark 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to read from Mark 1, verse 9 through 13. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark 1. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and we'll project the passage in just a moment. But but last week, as we began this study in Mark, excuse me, uh, we were introduced to a man, excuse me, Sorry. We were introduced to a man named John the Baptist. And we uh, learned that John is the coming, in his coming, he was the fulfillment of a prophecy. That he was to come to prepare the way of one who was coming that was greater than him, right? He came proclaiming in the wilderness, be ready, make way, prepare the way of the Lord, right? And so, so John's coming was to declare that someone greater is coming. We didn't meet that someone greater last week. We know it's Jesus, but this morning, now we uh, come across, we are introduced and are given a glimpse of this greater one, this king. And so let's go ahead and read Mark 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you uh, work and move, and we ask that you would work and move in this moment, that you would uh, lead us by your spirit, that you'd be with the one who preaches and all those who listen, so that what is said and done here this morning would honor and glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So Kat and I recently finished watching uh, the Netflix series, The Crown. I'm sure many of you have watched this series. We finally got caught up and finished it. But, but as we were watching these last few episodes and as I was preparing for this sermon, it made me think back to an episode that we saw in the very first season. It was an episode in the very first season of The Crown. If you're not familiar with The Crown, it's basically the story of Queen Elizabeth Right? It starts before she became queen, and it goes right up through her jubilee. I don't know if there's going to be more seasons or not, but, but, um, but there was this one episode in season one that focuses on the queen's coronation. And this was the first time ever that a, a monarch in England, that their coronation was televised. And so there were thousands of people who were watching the coronation, right? There were thousands in the road celebrating it. There were many in the church. And then there were millions watching from home. And they saw the, the oaths and the traditions and the songs. And they heard all the different elements of this ceremony making Elizabeth the queen. All of these things were on display, but there was one thing that, that they didn't get to see. You see, near the end of the coronation, before the crown was placed on her head and the scepter was put in her hand, she was anointed. She was anointed as the queen, but, but not everyone got to see this anointing. You see, when it came time for the anointing to occur, these four men walked out into the church, and, and they were carrying with them a golden canopy. And they put the canopy over Elizabeth so that the people in the church wouldn't have a clear view of her. And as the, the anointing was about to begin, all the television screens moved away from the live coverage, and all that was seen was a picture of a stained glass window. And the announcer, the commentator, said, We now come to the anointing, the single most holy, most solemn, most sacred moment of the entire service. It was so sacred, so holy, so solemn, that no one was to see it. And so the priest, he leans in, he kind of ducks under the canopy, and he anoints her hands and her chest and her head with oil. And declared over her, as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, so be thou anointed, blessed and consecrated queen, over the people that the Lord thy God has given to rule and govern in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And when the anointing was over, the canopy was pulled away, and the TV returned to the live coverage. And the people were able to now see their queen sitting on her throne, wearing her crown, scepter in her hand. But that anointing, it was too holy, too reverent. They didn't want others to look. They didn't want others to see. But in our passage, there's an anointing that is so great and so holy that all the world is to see it. You see, that's what's occurring in our passage. Mark is recounting for us the anointing of Jesus. And this anointing is not hidden from our eyes. No, it's an anointing that all are to see and all are to hear. That Christ is anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And God is declaring that Jesus himself is the king. So look how the passage plays out. So John's in the wilderness. He's still in the wilderness. He's baptizing people. And out comes Jesus. 
He comes out to be baptized by John. Now, what's interesting is you remember from a week ago, John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And yet Jesus comes out to be baptized. Now, this should be strange to us because Jesus had no sins to be forgiven of, right? I mean, the scriptures are clear. Jesus was without sin. In God's law, he kept perfectly. He never failed. He never transgressed. He never stumbled. He never fell. Jesus was perfect, without sin, without blemish. And yet here he comes to be baptized by John. And his baptism isn't simply a way of him, of him um, kind of being like his people. It is that of him associating with his people. There is an element to that, but it's actually more than that. You see, this baptism is a royal anointing. You see, in the Old Testament, when a king rose to the throne, they would be anointed. So think about uh, in 1 Samuel 16. Right? The, the prophet Samuel, he comes to the household of Jesse because uh, God has instructed him that the next king to follow Saul is coming from this house. And so he goes to Jesse and he says, bring forth your sons. Right? And you remember Jesse brings forth his sons and he starts with the oldest and he goes down the line and, and with everyone, it's like, nope, not this one. Who's next? You know, keep bringing them out. And finally they get to the end and there's no one left. Right? And Samuel says, well, is, do you have another son? Well, there's David, but he's the runt, he's small, he's out in the fields, you don't really want, no, bring him, right? And so he comes out, and Samuel hears from God, this is the king, this is the one. And so then we read in 1 Samuel 16, that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David was the king anointed with oil and filled with the Holy Spirit so that he was empowered to now fulfill the duties of the king. Okay, with that in, our back, in the back of our minds, right? As we're thinking about that, now listen again to what we hear in our passage. When he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. It sounds an awful lot like David's anointing, doesn't it? It's an anointing, not with oil, but now it's an anointing with the Spirit. And there's, there's all sorts of echoes and, and allusions to the Old Testament in this passage. In fact, we, we can't go through them all. The heavens being torn open, the wild beasts. Like, there are so many allusions, but, but a couple of others that point to the fact that Jesus is this anointed king is Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, that talks about the coming of the servant of the Lord. And when the servant of the Lord comes, he will be filled with the Spirit. Or to top it off, God's declaration over Jesus. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the expected king, the promised king, we know from the Old Testament was to be the son of God. Psalm 2 makes that clear. And so when we hear this language, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, Mark 1 is echoing back to Psalm 2 and declaring that Jesus is the unique son of God, the anointed one. He's the anointed king. But what's amazing about this anointing is actually what takes place next. Because you would think that once the king is anointed that he would uh, sit upon his throne. 
And he would don his crown and he would take hold of his scepter and he would rule over the nations, right? That's what you would think. I mean, that's what happened with Queen Elizabeth, right? The, the different dignitaries and the different people would come and pay homage to her as she sat on her throne, wearing her crown, holding her scepter. They would bow the knee before her. And so we would expect the same, right? If, if it's the Queen of England, we would expect that the king of the universe, this is what would happen, right? But that's not what happens. No, instead, look what happens in verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And doesn't that seem odd to us? That the king is driven out into the wilderness. Like, it feels like these two episodes really shouldn't go back to back. It's like we've turned the page and we've entered a new chapter, right? We, we would think that these two things really have little to do with one another at first glance. But it actually makes perfect sense that the king is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted. It makes perfect sense because as the Spirit comes upon Jesus and he is the anointed king, we're now going to see him living out the kingship. You see, the king in the Old Testament was supposed to be the ideal Israelite. If you wanted to know what it looked like to, to be an Israelite, to follow God, in the Old Testament, you were supposed to look at the king. He was the one who was supposed to keep the law and understand it. And he was supposed to walk with God in all his ways. He was supposed to be the ideal Israelite. And so Jesus, going out into the wilderness, is going to show that that's who he is. That he is faithful in all his ways. You see, the anointed one is also the faithful one. He's taken out into the wilderness for 40 days and tempted by Satan. Now, commentators like to point out that this 40 days in the wilderness is, is clearly supposed to make us think about the 40 years of wilderness wandering of Israel. And you remember what happened, right, with Israel. They were in Egypt, and they were delivered out of slavery, and God led them out, and they were being led towards the promised land. But as they were going to the promised land, wandering through the wilderness, what did Israel do? They grumbled and complained, right? They showed themselves to be faithless, and because they were faithless, they had to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And now Jesus, going into the wilderness for 40 days, he is replaying Israel's history, and he's tempted in the wilderness. Now, Mark doesn't tell us anything about the temptation. Did you notice that? Like, all Mark says is he was tempted by Satan, there were some wild animals, and the angels ministered to him. It's, you know, a little more detail would be nice here, Mark, right? Like, and, and I told you all, right, last week, I give you a heads up, this is the way Mark works, right? He gives very little detail, and so we have to look at other passages to help fill in some of the gaps. And when we look at Matthew and Luke, we know that Jesus was tempted in three ways, that Satan came and tempted him in three ways. The, the first is that he appeals to his hunger. So, right, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. He's fasting for 40 days, and so Satan comes to him and says, turn these rocks into bread, You've got to be hungry. Turn these rocks into bread. And we could see why that would be very tempting, right? I mean, 40 days without food. I mean, if we go four hours without food, wouldn't we want to be, right? We get hungry. But that's not what Jesus does. 
He doesn't give in to temptation. He doesn't turn the rocks into bread. Instead, what he says is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay, so Satan didn't lead him into sin with this one temptation, so he comes again. And in his second temptation, he, he questions God's goodness. And he says to Jesus, you know, go up to the temple and throw yourself off. God has promised that, that his anointed one, that the king, that, that he, will, he will rescue him, he will deliver him. So let's see if God's word is really true. Throw yourself off and see if the angels will come and deliver you. But Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he resisted a second time. And so a third time Satan comes and now he appeals to power. And he says, Jesus, if you will bow down before me and if you will worship me, I will give you the world. And Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In every way that Christ was tempted, he resisted. In every moment that Satan tried to turn God's word, Jesus saw it clearly. He didn't sin. In all the ways that Israel had failed before him, in the ways that Adam himself had faltered, in the ways that God's people have sinned, Jesus was faithful. That's what we see. Jesus is the faithful one. That when he was tempted, he held firm. Now, when thinking about temptation, I want to point out a couple things. I want to point out a couple things. The first thing I want to point out is, is how Satan twisted, how temptation twists the truth. Right? In, in all the ways that Satan came to Jesus, he never said, sin, reject God, turn from him. Right? That's not what he said. What he said was he took these things that were good, the promises of God, the scriptures, the Bible, God's very word. He took those things and he twisted ever so slightly to try to get Jesus to sin. And that's how temptation works, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're almost never tempted by evil, at least what we think is evil, right? Or, or ugliness, no, what tempts us is those things that, that look nice, that look beautiful. But if we looked a little closer, they, we would see that they really aren't. Right? Temptation is the slight turning. It's the slight turning of something that is good and making it something that is sinful. But Christ wouldn't be manipulated. He didn't fail. And when he was tempted, he resisted. We actually heard it in our assurance of pardon, didn't we? That Christ is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ didn't fail. He saw through what Satan was attempting to do. So that's the first thing. Temptation is often the twisting of truth. But the second thing I want us to see is that temptation isn't sin that there is a difference. And we have to remember that, that temptation doesn't equal sin, right? And that in a fallen world, temptation is going to be part of our experience. It's going to be part of our experience. And so we shouldn't be surprised when temptation arises. And the truth is, is that in our own lives, we're often not surprised when temptation arises. We're surprised that temptation arises in other people's lives because we're surprised that they're tempted by those things right? Like, you struggle with that sin? Man, I dealt with that a long time ago, right? Like, that's how we think. 
And we actually treat temptation like it's sin itself. But temptation isn't sin. Jesus was without sin, and yet he was tempted. No, the problem isn't temptation. Well, temptation is a problem. But, but the question isn't, will we experience temptation? The question is, what, we, what will we do when we experience it? Because it will come about. And the answer that we must respond with is to resist, to flee, to look to Jesus. See, that's what Hebrews also tells us. In another part of Hebrews, we're told that because we have one who has been tempted yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. To help us in our time of need. Y'all, isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses, that he understands what we're doing? I mean, isn't that a comfort to us? I mean, think about when you experience difficulty in your own life, when you're confronted by difficulty, when you're confronted by um, strained relationships. Maybe it's a strained relationship between uh, a parent and a child, or, or a child like, you know, our, our parents, my parents don't understand me, right? And, and they're, too, they're too strict or they're too whatever, right? Maybe, maybe it's in that direction. It's not the parent to the child, but the child to the parent. Or, or maybe it's when you experience a, a diagnosis, right? A, a difficulty arises in your life. In those times when we have someone who comes alongside us and says to us, I know what you're going through. I've been there. Not in the exact way you have, because no two situations are exactly the same, but, but I know something of what you're experiencing. And they, they can sympathize with us in our time of need, and they can comfort us in our time. I mean, doesn't that comfort us? To know we're not alone, but that there are others who understand us, who sympathize with us, who help us. Of course it is. It's a great comfort to us. And how much more so Christ? Because Jesus, he understands all of our failings. And he knows all the ways that we have faltered. And he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in all the ways we have, and yet he resisted. When he was tried, he was faithful. And so he's able to help in our time of need. And y'all, that is the so what of this passage. Do y'all know what I mean by that? The so what of this passage? Like, so sometimes, you know, you come, come to church on a Sunday and, and you come and you sit and, um, you know, you hear a preacher waxing eloquently or, or, or really just hopefully he's waxing coherently, right? I mean, that's really all that I'm shooting for up here. Um, do I make sense? But, um, uh, you know, we, we, we come and we hear these things and, and, and we find an interesting piece of theological knowledge or data and, and we walk away and go, oh, that was really interesting or that was really fascinating or I never knew that about the Bible. But, but we also wonder, like, so what? <laughs> like, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my daily life? Like, m- maybe y'all don't put it that way, but, but that's what we're asking. What does this have to do with me? And, and it's here. It's here where Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses and help us in our time of need. It is here that this passage tells us what it has to do with us. 
You see, it's here that this passage has everything to do with us. Because the truth is, is what we need, what we are in need of is one who is not like us. You see, we're not the anointed one. We're not like him. And we're not like the faithful one. No, we're actually grumblers and complainers and those who have failed and those who have faltered and those who have questioned God's goodness and have, when, been, when we've been tested, we have fallen short and we have given in to temptation. We are those people. And so what we are in need of isn't more strength and resolve. Ultimately, what we need is one who has resisted, who has succeeded where we have failed. We need one who is without sin. What we need is the king who is faithful. And that's who Christ is. He is the one who has kept God's law perfectly and resisted temptation, and he was faithful to go to the cross and take our failings upon himself and to give us his perfect record and to help us now in our time of need. That's who he is. The anointed, faithful king who uses his faithfulness for the sake of his people to help us in our time of need. And so what do we do? We turn to him. We rely upon him. We look to him because he's the anointed one. He is the faithful one. Don't turn to yourselves. Don't, don't turn to the world. Turn to Christ. He's the anointed and faithful king that we are in need of. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you that Jesus is without sin or blemish, that he led a perfect life, he kept your law without fail, and that he has used his faithfulness for the sake of those who are faithless, for us. And so we pray that we would turn to him that we would turn away from temptation, that we would flee from sin, and that we would cling to him, knowing that in our time of need, our anointed king is faithful to help us. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, help us. Help us to honor and worship you today and all of our days. And we pray all this in Christ's name and God's people said together, amen.